Well, guys, I got to be honest, I am nervous. It's not because there's a lot of you here. It's because my wife is days away from her due date. And we have discussed that if things are to start taking place, she's just going to raise a hand and I'm going to put the microphone down, follow her out. We're going to actually, that's not how that conversation went. I said, well, I mean, I'll meet you at the hospital. It probably won't happen that quick. I'll finish my sermon first, you know? And all the ladies said, no, no, no. And all the good husbands said, nope, mm -mm, no, that's not how that works. Uh, we are excited that you guys are here with us. We have been going through a sermon series on the book of Mark. Uh, so our text this evening will be the resurrection story uh, from the book of Mark. This is Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Hear these words. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The word of God for the people of God. For many of us, there is nothing more frustrating than an unresolved or a surprise or a bad ending. Now, I remember as a student in my seminary days, I was taking a summer Hebrew course, and I would go and learn Hebrew from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m., Monday through Thursday, every day of the week, all summer. It was awesome. And that puts me into a certain special context of people, um, nerds, but I loved it. But one of, one of my saving graces was after a long day of study and reading, I would turn on my DVD player and pop in Lost. And I remember watching this show and you would just be kind of following along. You'd be really wondering what's going to happen. And then all of a sudden the screen would go black. These words would, would pop up, these, these letters, and it would just say lost. And there was a sound effect that went with it. It was like, and you're like, no. And it's like two in the morning. You're thinking, I've got to figure out what happens. Six seasons later, no one still really has any idea what's going on in that show. And for, for a lot of us, it was frustrating. Kate and I also have become quite addicted to Netflix and we have Hulu Plus and there's just, you know, we put Abe to bed and then we just get on the couch and we just watch TV shows in mass quantities together. Uh, and all God's people said, amen. Yeah. Um, and one of the shows that we just really bought into, Hook, Line, and Sinker, was How I Met Your Mother. And we spent nine seasons figuring out what Ted Mosby's up to. And I was so livid at the end of that dumb show. I will not tell you what is going on. I see some faces like losing respect in me as a person right now, but come on, okay? 
the girl with the umbrella, like that was Ted's woman. Okay, sorry if that, if that ruined it for you, my bad, but you've had the, the statute of limitations is over. You should have figured out the ending at this point um, by now. For moviegoers, and I use this example quite often, there is nothing more frustrating than the end of the movie Inception. Right? And I, I butcher the plot of this movie every time. I, it's about dreams and Leo DiCaprio and the, the kid from Angels in the Outfield. You know, it's like, and the, the, the dreams, and he spins the top, and you're just wondering if he's going to be with his kids or if it's just a dream. And, and at the very end, like it just cuts to black and Inception pops up, and you, you're just left on the edge of your seat trying to figure out what's going to happen. How does this story conclude? How does it resolve? How, how, how does it finish? What, what do we take away from it? And, and for some storytellers, that's part of the genius. They want you to engage the story. They want you to be invited in and try to figure out what the characters might do and figure out, at least in your own mind, how you want it to go. The ending of Inception is just ambiguous enough that you could either think that it's a dream or you could think that it's real life, and I think that's part of, of the genius, but still there's, there's a frustration there where we want to have closure, we want to know how the story ends. Mark, I believe, is a master storyteller, and in verse 8 of chapter 16, he ends his resurrection story with these words, trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid screen goes to black, and for some people, perhaps, a sense of frustration and angst would have taken over, like, well, what, what do you mean? That's, that's not how it ends, that's not, like, why, Mark, why would you leave it right there? Now, if you're following along in your um, Bibles, you got Bibles in the pew in front of you, or you might be on your smartphone, um, you know that there's verses that come after Mark 16, verse 8. Uh, there's a, a whole host of them. 9 through, through 20, but most scholars would say that Mark 16, 9 through 20 was most likely not written by Mark. Now, I don't say this to, to sow seeds of doubt. I say this because our Bible is awesome and we should celebrate it, but you'll see that in most English Bibles, they'll have like a line or a bracket or something that'll say the earliest manuscripts that we have and the best manuscripts that we have of this story in the Greek language, they do not include verses 9 through 20. And there's some, there's some other interesting notes that when you, when you read those verses, it just doesn't seem or it doesn't feel or it doesn't look like anything else that Mark has written up to this point. If you dip into the Greek language, like he's using vocabulary, the author is using vocabulary that hasn't appeared at any point in the rest of the book. So a lot of people have drawn the conclusion that this was a, a later addition to the story to try to finish it up because they were frustrated with the lack of resolve in frustrated and bewildered and trembling. These women just leave the tomb and they don't say anything to anybody. That didn't seem to be enough closure, so people wanted to add to that. But what scholars have done is they basically come up with three different um, theories as to what's going on with this. The first theory is the original ending that Mark himself actually wrote was lost. If you have scrolls, a lot of times the end or the beginning of the scroll could have been chopped off or corrupted or we could have potentially lost it. And some people would say, this isn't how Mark would have ended the story. There must be more and we just potentially lost it. Other people would say that Mark was somehow prevented from finishing his gospel. He was writing at a time when persecution was a real thing. Perhaps he was old or advanced in years and perhaps he wasn't able 
to conclude the book himself. Or there's a third theory. Mark, as a master storyteller, intended for this story to end with the women running away, afraid, and in silence. Now, this view has kind of taken on a, a new uh, hold in the scholarly community now because it's, it's, it's fun to think about. It's fun to think about Mark as a storyteller who wants to end at a cliffhanger and ask the readers to continue on and try to struggle through what happens next. Now, it's important for us uh, to understand a couple of things. With the movie Inception, it's a, it's a fabricated story. It's fiction. You can take the ending in any way that you want to, but for Mark and for his audience, they actually knew what did happen. They knew the ending, and some people would say that Mark was leaving this ambiguous so that you could fill in the blanks yourself. Some people even said that in the reading, they would end with verse 8, and then they would open it up for the congregation to kind of stand up and say what happens next, perhaps in the historical uh, retelling or in their own lives, saying this is what the resurrection has meant for us. It's at least clear, though, that Mark knows what's going on here. He knows that the tomb is empty. He knows that Jesus has risen from the dead. And he knows that these women did not remain silent forever because this gospel has gone out and people now know it. And Mark knew it and celebrated it. However, there's still that question of why would he end the story with this strange note about women leaving in fear, in silence, I want to uh, sort of propose a way to engage the end of this story that invites us in, that invites our response and allows us to, in a sense, take a part in this story. Now, I can't say for, for certain if the ending was lost or if Mark was prohibited from writing it. I can't say for certain that he really wanted it to end at verse eight, but I do want to leave that ending there for the night and just trying to get into the story and see what it is that we can pull out of it and see what it is that we can bring to resolve and bring to, to the conclusion. So I'm just gonna kind of march through the verses that we've read, pull out some things that I think are interesting, and then um, hopefully be able to apply it to our lives. So the story begins this way. When the Sabbath was over, in the ancient Jewish community, the Sabbath keeping was a big deal. There was everything about Jesus's trial and his death and his burial was rushed. These people had an agenda to kill him, to get rid of him, to completely um, rid themselves of the problem that he was bringing about for these people. The Sabbath meant that, that certain um, Certain things could not take place. And as Jesus was kind of put into the tomb before Friday, the sunset on Friday, which would lead us into Sabbath, there were certain things that couldn't happen. Namely, um, Jesus's body was not anointed or not prepared. And these women, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, wanted to bring spices and to buy them and then to get up early the next morning and go anoint his body because there probably would have been some funeral rites that would have taken place around where Jesus was and they wanted him not to be smelling too bad. So they wanted to be able to anoint his body with the spices that they, that they bought. It's interesting here because this is the first time in Mark's gospel that he is naming these women. It's the first time throughout the story where they're, they're taking on a dominant role in the story. Some people would say that as Jesus has been resurrected and the women are entrusted with this message that they are actually the first preachers of the gospel. 
And Jesus is entrusting them with the task of going and telling others the good news that he is no longer dead, that he has been raised. Uh, One scholar says, women are not only the first ones to whom the message about Jesus' resurrection is proclaimed, and they are not merely charged by angels to make the message known. They also witness the resurrected Christ in some stories, actually don't in Mark, um, and they're the first ones that Jesus sends to announce and to bear witness to his resurrection. Here in Mark, it's actually the angel that sends them out to do that. But we have these women who are named. These women are not who you would think would be prime players in this story. Some people have even used this for a proof that the resurrection actually happened because if you're making up a story about a Jewish man who was crucified, you would not put this gospel in the mouths of women. This is an embarrassing note on on history, but it's the, the fact that at the time, the testimony of a woman in first century Jewish culture was not worth anything. So for someone to make up this story, people have said it wouldn't make any sense. You would want a good, God-fearing, upstanding man to have this message. But here we see these women, these unlikely characters that are being brought into the story. And throughout the book of Mark and throughout the Gospels, we have often seen unlikely characters being invited in to play vital roles in the Gospel. Perhaps as we sit here tonight, we're viewing ourselves as unlikely characters in the story and to which I would say you have a lot of company. The people that Jesus invites in, they're not the ones that you would think. They're not the ones that are oftentimes wealthy and upstanding in in the culture, but they're just people on the margins and the outskirts, but they're brought in and the role that they play is humbling. So these women, as they are walking, they've got their spices, they're going to the tomb, they're going to anoint Jesus' body, and they begin to have a conversation with themselves, and they say, uh, problem, who's going to roll away the stone? Now, a couple of these women had been with Joseph of Arimathea earlier as Jesus was buried, and they saw the stone would be put in front of the tomb, and now they begin to ask questions, how are we going to move it because it's really stinking heavy? Now, this is a picture of what might be a first century tomb. You can see the big, huge, circular rock. It's got a track there, and you can use levers and pieces of wood or whatever to to slide it into place, but these rocks might have weighed anywhere from 1,500 pounds to 3,000 pounds. They were no joke, and these three ladies had their spices and they were ready to be there, but they were beginning to wonder if they could actually move it from where it was so that they could do what it is that they needed to do. Interesting side note that I found out for the very first time a couple of days ago that I had never heard before. Whenever I think about the, the tomb, this is kind of what I picture. Big circular stone, Roll it in front of the tomb. Did you know that of the 900 tombs that have been excavated and found, that most of them have square rocks that have been chiseled out and put into the front? And did you know that the circular rocks demonstrated something about the wealth of the person who had the tomb? So here, Joseph of Arimathea, this guy who was wanting so desperately to bury Jesus because in this culture it was, it was a sign of respect and it was something that was necessary um, to happen. He was a man of means, a man of purpose, and he wanted to use whatever he had to honor Jesus. Now, for the women, when they show up, they don't have to worry about the, the stone because the stone is already rolled away, and as they go into the tomb, they see a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right-hand side, and they were afraid. You think? 
You go into a tomb and there's just some random dude in a white robe. Hey, ladies. <laughs> it's interesting. When you compare the resurrection stories, there's oftentimes different players um, who go to the tomb, and there's also different players who are the ones that are disseminating this information. In Mark's story, it's a young man in white robes. In other stories, it's angels. In other stories, they're sitting on the rock. In other stories, they're in different places. And, and the, the diversity that we see in the Gospels, I don't think is something to be fearful of or scared of, but it's something actually to be celebrated because these people were storytellers. And they're playing a role in how they're weaving together what this story meant. And for Mark, he wanted to highlight the fact that this was just a guy sitting in the tomb with the white robe. Now, for most people, as they heard this, they would have thought angel or messenger. When we think angel, we think like eight foot tall, flowing blondish hair, maybe huge wings. It's like the things that we see on the weird shows on Fox TV. Don't mind me. Like we have these images of, of big like Gabriel type angels, but here we just see a guy, and this is, this is true throughout scripture, where we have people that just kind of show up, and they're, they're entrusted with a task. This angel uh, was sitting on the right side, and people would say that that's like a sign of prominence or authority or what have you, but he says, don't be alarmed. I love that. Every time an angel shows up or whatever, he, the first words that they say is, don't be afraid. Okay, so when I was a kid, uh, we had a room off to the side and there was this old like high back chair that just sat in the corner. Um, this is kind of related, just bear with me. And I remember like I would go around the corner and go up the stairs and I would look in that room and see that high back chair and every time I saw it, I just thought there was somebody in there and I would sprint up the stairs. I'm like 15, 16, 17, 18, 22. It doesn't matter, like I'm still just kind of. <laughs> Don't be afraid, ladies, it's just me. It's okay. He continues, you're looking for Jesus, the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. Everything kind of hinges on this one word in the Greek, egerthe. He has risen. Every question that they had was summed up in this one potent word. The thing that you're seeking to do, you can't do because he's not here anymore. He's risen. Come, see where, he, where they laid his body. He's not there. This, this announcement to these women was earth-shattering and completely changing the trajectory of human history. Jesus had, had been leading up to this in his own teaching, and I think sometimes in hindsight, 2,000 years later, we can look back at these women and wonder why they're surprised and why they're afraid because Jesus has been saying this over and over in the Gospel of Mark. Three instances between chapters 8 and chapter 10, Jesus keeps saying, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be killed. But in three days... I will rise. No one understood this because no one was expecting it. This wasn't part of their story. This wasn't part of their expected ending of their story. They were expecting someone to come in and to rule with power and authority and to remove the Romans from, from their seat of power and to allow Israel to not be in oppression anymore. And what Jesus was doing was laying down his life. The disciples and, and the early followers of Jesus, they just didn't get it. And we see that here as the women are at the tomb and they still are surprised and they don't quite understand what's happening. 
And I think for some of us, we still demonstrate ourselves to be those who have our own set of misunderstandings about who Jesus is. Throughout the Bible, there's images of the cross and the empty tomb, in particular, what the cross and the empty tomb symbolizes. Now, when I was a kid, and this is just my story, I don't want to impose it on anyone else, but I imagine that there's a handful of people that can identify with where I'm coming from. The way that the gospel was told to me was, I am sinful, I am broken, I am not worth anything, God is angry at me, and the only way that I can be in right relationship with God is because of what Jesus has done. It's almost as if there was a chasm between me and Jesus, and I had to place my trust in him because it was only through his work that I would be saved. And I believe that there's certainly truth in that, but we've kind of imported this, and what's happened is a lot of people have simply believed in Jesus because of their fear and trembling that they do not want to go to hell for all of eternity. The gospel has turned into fear-mongering. The gospel has turned into a scare tactic where we have little kids and we say, you'll go to this place and be punished for all of eternity because God is so mad at you unless you accept Jesus. And I think sometimes we take that and we bring it to this, this telling of the story and we miss a lot of the beauty in other images of the cross and the empty tomb. Throughout the Bible, we see images that, yes, there are legal transactions where Jesus's work is something that we could not do for ourselves and the only way that, that God will see us as, as righteous is because of what Jesus has done. There's also images that see this as, as a forgiveness. It's like economic in the sense of it's a debt forgiveness or it's a release from slavery and bondage. There's also one very interesting image throughout the Old Testament that I want to highlight tonight. It's the image of God carrying our sin. There's a story in Exodus chapter 34 where God reveals himself in like the climactic way to Moses and he shows up and he says, this is who I am, Moses. If you're going to understand me, this is the stuff that you need to know. I am Yahweh, Yahweh, or the Lord, the Lord. He repeats his name, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Now, what's interesting is this word here for forgiving uh, wickedness, rebellion, and sin is actually a word that means to carry. It's as if God is taking all of our sin, all of our brokenness, all of our shame, all of our guilt, and absolving it in himself for the sake of relationship with us. It's as if he's saying, there's nothing that you can do, and all the wrongs that you have committed, I'll own them, because I love you and I do not want to be estranged from you. It's not just that God is so angry with us. It's this image of God saying, I love you. And all the stuff that you bring to the table, the ways that you've rejected me, the ways that you've gone the other way, the way that you have just kind of stiff-armed me, I'll take that because I love you. It's as if there's this relationship and a lot of times you see two different people in relationships and sometimes one person gets wronged and, and in order for that relationship to maintain, somebody just has to eat it. And here we see God, in a sense, eating the wrongs that we bring to the table 
because he loves us. One scholar says this, on the cross, God went to the omega point, the absolute farthest point that he could go of letting humanity do its worst. There is nothing worse that you can do to someone than to kill them, especially God, or no further that you can go in submitting to people than to let them kill you. If that does not also destroy the relationship, then nothing can. So on resurrection day, God once again stands with arms open showing that God has even carried murder. It's not just this legal transaction that's taking place, but it's Jesus on the cross saying, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. It's Jesus saying they don't understand, they don't understand what this is, but I will take everything that they're bringing to the table and I will completely own it because I want so desperately to be in relationship with these people. It moves beyond a scare tactic to something that's open and loving Something that's, in my opinion, a bit more compelling, where we see a God who so radically and relentlessly loves us, he would allow himself to be sacrificed for us to take care of the wrongs that we bring to the table. Now, in the book of Mark, this is interesting how this plays out because the, the angel continues on and he says, but go, Mary and Mary and Salome, go and tell his disciples and Peter. This is interesting because a couple of chapters earlier, especially in other synoptic gospels in Matthew and Luke, Peter is the one that says, Lord, I, I will not deny you. Wherever you go, I go. If they kill you, they're gonna kill me too. And Jesus says, that's great, but that's really not how that's gonna work out. And we see this one climactic moment where, where Peter is in the courtyard and he keeps denying and he keeps saying that's not the guy. He's cussing and he's cursing and he's just doing all that he can do to, to dissociate himself from Jesus. And one gospel says the third time that this happens, Jesus looks over and catches eyes with Peter and Peter just breaks down and weeps because he understands what has happened in that moment. He has denied the one person that has completely, radically, relentlessly loved him. And the message to the women at the tomb is, ladies, Go tell the disciples and Peter. In the Greek, you could translate it, go tell the disciples, even Peter. It's this note where, again, Jesus so desperately wants relationship with each and every one of us that he says, I know what you've done. I know how you've denied me. I know how you've gone the other way. But what I have done, I've taken those wrongs and I've completely owned them so that this can continue so that this relationship can actually last. There's so many of us in this room that cannot get on board with that because that's not how relationships really work. When you get wronged, you want vengeance. You want something to be righted. And that's kind of the way that we've, we've talked about the gospel. There's a wrong that we bring to the table and Jesus has to right it or else. But here we see a different picture where Jesus is sort of saying, I know, but that's not enough. Your sin and your brokenness and your shame, it's not enough to destroy this relationship. I won't let it. I will die before that happens. And even if I do, I'll rise from the dead because I love you that much. Go tell the disciples, even 
Peter, restore Peter. In the other gospels, we have these accounts where Jesus is talking to Peter on the beach and it's like this moment, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do you love me? It's like this, this threefold sort of reaffirmation of who Peter is. And I just think we get an image of, of what Jesus was doing in these last couple of days as we celebrate Easter and resurrection and new life. A lot of times I think we have just diminished the importance of that and the beauty of that as well. The screen goes to black and these words show up trembling and bewildered. The women went out and fled from the tomb and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. And for the early readers of this story, they were left thinking, what do we do with that? Where do we go? Where do we take it? What do we do? And I think one way that you could read it, again, I don't know if this is how the story actually ends, but one way you could read it is, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to us to figure out what role we play, and if we too leave the tomb in fear and in trembling, or if we leave the tomb wanting to proclaim life, hope, love, forgiveness, God carrying our sin and our shame and our brokenness paying for it, or if we just can't quite get on board and we begin to cower in fear and trembling. One scholar says this, uh, since Mark does not wrap up all the loose ends, we have no alternative but to return to the inception of his narrative, to go back to the beginning where it says the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ and to start to read it again as our story. Mark's gospel is just the beginning of the good news because Jesus's story has become ours and we take it up where Mark leaves off this, this, this ending with these women who don't say anything to anyone. And Mark knew that they would eventually do that, but he wants people to begin to engage in the story and figure out how they would bring it to its conclusion. So I have just a couple of questions to help wrap our mind around some of this. Has Jesus's story actually become our story? We've heard it. There's a lot of people here and, and we feel compelled to be in church on a Sunday, especially on, on Easter, where it's like, these are the things that we do, but have we actually bought in to this story of redemption and hope and peace and justice and mercy? Have we actually begun to acknowledge that Jesus has carried our sin and our shame and he has put it to death on the cross because he loves us and because he desperately wants to be in relationship with us? Or have we built up those walls that say, nah, I'm not good enough. If he knew the things that I did, then have we built up those walls where we, we begin to distance ourselves, where we leave trembling and bewildered and afraid? Or are we allowing ourselves to acknowledge that Jesus wants to be with us so much? that he allowed himself to take the full brunt of the things that we bring to the table, the rejection, the scorn, the mocking, and to completely bury it so that our relationship could continue. Have we begun to fight for relationship? Have we moved on from acknowledging into understanding what Jesus is calling us into? A relationship that's not just, oh, this is great, now I don't have to go to hell, but we actually begin to walk in justice and goodness and peace 
and love, and people can see that in us. The people that you live uh, in the dorms with can see that. The people that you go to school with can see that. The people that you work with can see that. The people that you live with at home that you're married to, that they can see that, and your kids can see that in and through you so that when they grow up and they look back and think about their church experience, they're not bogged down with guilt and shame, but they see love and forgiveness that they've seen modeled in their parents who they know are following Jesus. Have, have the people in your lives seen that? Have we moved from acknowledgement into living it out and making this something that we actually care about? Or are we, like the women in this story, consumed by fear, not wanting to say anything to anyone, not wanting to kind of upset the status quo, not wanting to put, our, put ourselves out there, not wanting to risk it? In the book of Mark, we are afforded this black screen that leads to the credits and I think it's begging us to enter in and begin to ask the question, how have we brought this story to its conclusion? What is the message that we proclaim and what is the life that people see in and through us? Have we been so radically transformed by the love of Jesus who's taken all of our sin and all of our shame and all of our guilt and completely owned it so that we can be in relationship with him? Have people been able to see that in us or do we live just because we want to do what we want to do. How do we bring this story to its conclusion? Easter's great because it's all about new life and it's about resurrection and it's about hope. And my hope is that as we sit here this evening, we can be challenged not only to receive that, but to live that each and every day where we allow people to see a different image of Jesus, not one where his dad is so mad at us that he can't even stand the sight of us, but one that perhaps where he sees us with love and with forgiveness, wanting to take our sin and our shame and do away with it so that we can still be in relationship with him. I hope tonight that we've found that relationship and I hope that we're walking in it. And I hope that as we celebrate Easter together that it's not just a ritual, but it's something that actually transforms who we are each and every day.